It might take me a minute to get my bearings because my husband is in the back holding a baby right now and it's very distracting. <laughs> Not ours, we've got four, we're tapping out. Please, Lord, we're tapping out. Um, but it's just so cute. And she's so cute. Um, so I kind of like to teach and act and pretend like you're just at my house on my couch or like I'm at your house on your couch. Right, Kathy Butcher? Right? Mm -hmm. I go to Kathy Butcher's house and have couch time, is what I call it. And it's where we just sit on the couch. And I usually end up crying. She usually ends up giving me some really wise words of wisdom. Because she's wise. I'm not saying she's old. I'm just saying she's wise. <laughs> Love you, KB. Um, so, if you haven't been to the gathering before, welcome. So glad you're here. And we have been on a journey this year unpacking truth with a capital T. Um, figuring out some of the things that we say, maybe you see it on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt or like a coffee mug. Like, God won't give you more than you can handle. I wish you just didn't have so much faith in me or those kinds of things. But really opening up the Bible and looking to see the truth. And so we have unpacked some really fun, amazing, intense topics so far this year. We've talked about, does the Bible really say you need to have a quiet time? Um, Laura did a phenomenal job on that. If you were not here in January, I feel so sorry for you. But the good news is that you can go onto the Salem Alliance website and listen to Jennifer Roth teach on does the Bible really say the man needs to be the spiritual leader of the home? And you definitely want to listen to it, for sure. It's really good. And by the way, it's not intimidating at all to follow Jennifer teaching for two months. <laughs> Didn't freak me out one bit. <laughs> Next time I speak, I'm going to follow a newbie, <laughs> not a well-seasoned on the preaching team pastor of women's ministry. That's what I'm going to do next time. Remind me of that uh, gathering team. Remind me of that. Next time we're figuring all this out. So, does the Bible actually say that God won't give you more than you can handle? Dun, dun, dun. So what I'm going to do really quick is give you some time at your table to actually talk about that. What do you think? What are your thoughts on that? Do you, do you think it's in the Bible? Is it not in the Bible? Do you think that maybe... Um, I don't know. What do you think? I know what I think, and you're going to hear what I think later. But right now, I want to give you guys an opportunity to talk about what you think. One of the things I love about the setup for the gathering is that we get to have this table talk time where we kind of unpack it, and we kind of bring up new perspective and new ideas and new concepts. And that's a great thing, too, about the intergenerational piece, because I feel like there are so many things that I can learn from people who have lived more life than me, and there are things that they can learn from me, too, because I still think I can change the world, so <laughs> pie in the sky sometimes, but also realistic as well, finding a good balance. So if there's any brave souls out there who want to maybe share, recap a little bit what was said at their table, I would love to hear some. Oh, somebody, somebody's getting pointed at to talk. <laughs> you don't have to. The concept is that we've talked about at their table is the fact that if we don't have more than we can handle, we don't really need to trust or turn to God. So we do get more than we can handle and we, and we need those opportunities so that we can lean into him. 
Anybody else want to share? <gasps> JJ, hi. How are you? Good. So at JJ's table, there was a unanimous voting that took place, and they all agree <laughs> that, <laughs> that God, and if you don't agree, just smile and nod, okay? We're going to go for unity on this one. Um, that it, a lot of life circumstances and situations are more than we alone by ourselves can handle, but not necessarily more than what God can handle or more than what the body together can handle. So bringing in that piece of community, which I love. <laughs> Blessed are the flexible, so they shall be bent, right? Oh, I, that's awesome. I like that one. <laughs> T. Definitely. So at T's table, they talked about the fact that there are multiple examples in the Bible of people who got more than they could handle. Um, and one of, one of the things that I want to do is give us an opportunity here from somebody, from one of us. Um, so Diane, if you want to head on up, and we're going to talk about a season in her life when she had more than she could handle, and how that all unfolds as we just sit in our cozy chairs and drink coffee. Oh wait, let me get you a mic. And speaking of hotty toddies, woo! Oh, and her hunk of burning love is in the back. Rod, wave, wave. It is, it's hard to be this hard. He's videoing, okay. sorry. Because <laughs> that's what I say when I look in the mirror every morning. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm Diane. I love you. <laughs> so, Diane, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. So I am new to Salem Alliance. Um, I'm going to give you kind of the quick snapshot. Um, I was, did I do the whole birthing where I came from story last night? I kind of can't forget, remember what I said last night, but anyway. Don't talk about your birthing experience. Okay. <laughs> but it is, I think we're babies. <laughs> I know, and, I mean, you can if you want. <laughs> okay, yeah, for another day. So uh, my story, really quick, like, I was born and raised in Washington State, um, Raised in a family, I had two older brothers, mom and dad. Um, dad's a practicing alcoholic. Um, mom is what they call an adult child of an alcoholic. So both her parents were practicing alcoholics, very rageful. Uh, she grew up in a very violent home. And so mom made things look good on the outside and um, kind of tried to keep the house together. But it was not a um, loving, awesome upbringing for me. So... Um, that's the life I grew up in and um, went, gosh, I'm sorry, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm distracted by my hunk of burning love back there. <laughs> it flowed so much better Jeff, you time. should give Rod the baby and see if that oh, is Lord. distracting. <laughs> Alex is getting passed around in the back, poor oh, girl. Oh my gosh. Um, the spiritual aspect of our home growing up, um, mom was raised Catholic, dad was raised Mormon, and when you were married back in that day, um, the woman took on the husband's uh, religion. And so our family was Mormon until I was about eight, and then they kind of dropped out of the church altogether. So really, I don't have much spiritual upbringing. I knew that I didn't fit in the Mormon church at all. Um, I didn't really fit anywhere. I kind of had that hole, I like to call a hole in my soul. And so I looked for different opportunities to fill that hole, um, food, uh, relationships, and eventually it became drugs and alcohol. And I found a beautiful fill to that hole in my soul with drugs and alcohol for several years. 
And um, flash forward a little while, um, I get sober, I meet this really great guy. Um, yeah, he was the best relationship I ever had. His name's Rod. We get married, we have a little girl, he's got a son, we've got a family. So I adopted him and I had a girl, I got a twofer, <laughs> two for one. It was like, um, it was awesome, it was like a BOGO, buy one, get one. <laughs> That's what we did, too, with yeah, our twins. Yeah, you yeah. go times two. Yeah. Cool. And um, anyway, we're going along doing this married thing and having a family. And um, my son says, uh, one year at Christmas, like, I want everything under the sun. Every commercial that came on TV, he wanted everything. And I knew limited bits of information from my Mormon upbringing that there was more to Christmas than just the gimmies. So I told Rod, we got to go to church. We got to find like some religious upbringing for these kids. We got to give them something. And if they grow up one day and don't want to follow it, that's okay. It's not really okay. But, <laughs> um, you know, if they grow up and decide what they decide, but we need to give them a foundation. And so he knew his old baseball coach was an interim pastor at this little Alliance church up in Washington. So we started going. And oh, I'm telling you what, like for the first Six months I was in there, I had the coffee cup and the, the bulletin in my hand, and I was really stiff, and I watched you all have your hands in the air and praising, and I'm like, that is so weird. <laughs> but there was something deep inside that said, like, oh, I want that so bad. I want what she has, but I don't know how to get it. And uh, we gave our lives to Christ. Um, Rod heard the call, and the uh, Lord told him he was going to be a pastor. And I know he shared this from the platform uh, on the weekend services. I literally laughed in his face. I think I actually rolled on the bed a while while laughing at him and said, dude, you are so not a pastor. And even bigger than that, I am not a pastor's wife. Not so much. Um, and anyway, so God called and we answered and uh, took a church up in Eagle River, Alaska and spent seven years up there. We uh, started in the church about 20 people. And when we left after seven years, we were right around 750 so it was really awesome what God did up there. I mean, he really grew that church and, and blessed a lot of people. And um, so Steve Fowler, the senior pastor here, and Rod have been really good friends for years. And um, this opportunity arose here in Salem Alliance, and we jumped at it. So we came here in October. So we're newbies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Isn't that great, newbies? There we it love is. them. Yeah. We're happy to have them. Yeah. So... When, tell us about that, that particular turning point when life was more than you could handle. So in, um, I'm going to use uh, my drugs and alcohol for that experience. Um, I, I was actively using um, from about age 18, 17, 18, until age 26. And um, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous calls it an, a moment of incomprehensible demoralization. And I reached that point on July 27th of 1996 and I was driving down the highway. I was in a blackout. And for those of you who don't know what that is, a blackout is, a, is um, irretrievable memory loss. And only an alcoholic has a blackout. Um, and what it means is, like in our brains, as we have memories, there's a record button and a play button. And so that's how we get our memories, is that record button. Well, when you have a blackout, the record button pops up. And you're still acting. I was still doing my thing but I can't remember anything. And I would kind of flash in and out. And what I do know is that when we got home that night from the bar with my girlfriend, um, I was behind the wheel and there was blood inside the car because while I was driving home, I was, I was hitting her. 
And I, I don't know what was coming up for me. I don't know what it was. Um, but when we got to my house, uh, I left her in the car. And about 30 minutes later, the police showed up and arrested me for assault. And I was 26. And I was as low as I could possibly go. And um, I went to see my counselor, who I had been seeing at the time, because, see, all of you were the problem. <laughs> it wasn't me or my drinking behavior. It wasn't any of that. It was all of you. If you would just get off my back, I would be fine. And my counselor was awesome. She asked if she had permission to come and sit next to me on the stool or on the couch. And I said, sure. And so she sat next to me. And she said, do I have permission to touch your shoulders? I said, okay. <laughs> And then she shook me like this. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. She was a little woman. I mean, she like took me to task. And she said, how much more do you have to lose, Diane? You've lost your self-respect. You've lost your dignity. You've lost friendships. You've lost your finances, your morals. You're going to lose your job. What more do you have to lose? And so we sat down and opened up this thing called the Yellow Pages that some of you may have never even seen. <laughs> we went down the line of treatment centers and found one, and I went in and took an alcohol assessment. And this is a, t a test that I was so excited. I totally passed. Like, I think I got 100%. <laughs> Only I didn't realize that meant, yes, you're really an alcoholic. <laughs> oh, okay, sweet. So I checked myself into treatment willingly, and... Um, by the grace of God and by the beautiful 12 steps, I have not um, had a drink or a drug since July 30th, 1996. So life was more than you can handle. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. And then to fill that and to medi medicate that, then the drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. And... Then what? So between getting sober and between my son's gimmies, I think God was really working on my heart, and he was, he was introducing me to himself. And his spirit was alive. Like all these people were in my life who would talk about faith and Christianity and Jesus. And I didn't really want anything to do with any of that. But I love our God, and he is so persistent, and he knows that he has something to do in each one of us. And he has people for each one of us to reach. And so he is like tenacious. And so he sought after, he sought after. And, and I met Rod and we had kids and I realized, wow, we need faith. And so he brought us to himself through church and brought us into ministry. And we have seen countless people uh, come to faith and be baptized and, and live in a, a faith and a walk that is unlike anything that they have ever experienced in their life. And it's such a huge blessing to be on this side and watch it all happen. And he uses every pain. He truly uses every pain. And I'm not sure if I answered your question. I think you did. Okay. Do you, um, do you feel like it was something that you had to do on your own? Or do you feel like the community piece also with God? Like there's kind of a... Absolutely. Talk to me about that. The, the cool thing when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, because I was kind of anti-Jesus, I'll just be honest, when I got to AA, they were really cool, and they're like, look, if this coffee cup is your higher power, then at least this is your higher power. It's not you. Oh, well, there's a concept, because step <laughs> one says admitted we are powerless. 
I'm like, hmm, I don't think I'm powerless. I think I got the control. But step two says, came to believe in a power greater than ourselves. And step three says, became willing to turn my life and my will over to him. Mm. And so through that process, through those beautiful 12 steps, and through Jesus prompting, I realized that, yes, I did try to do it all on my own, and I know where that takes me. And when I let God, even though sometimes I'm like, come on, you know, <laughs> really? Um, when I follow him, it's, it's always much more of a smooth path. Mm-hmm. Not, not bumpy. It's bumpy, but it's, mm-hmm. it's not me. When I'm in control, it's lame. That's Super a great lame. bumper sticker. Yeah. When I'm in control, it's lame. I like that. Or like a mug or a t-shirt. Absolutely. We could start like with a slogan. Get, the, get that up on the website soon. <laughs> um, Dan, thanks for being so honest and so vulnerable and transparent and real. You bet. Um, I really appreciate that. I think a lot of times in the Christian subculture, we tend to kind of, um, well, just ignore that yeah. kind of stuff addiction and drugs and alcohol and um, I, I just so appreciate your willingness to jump in and tell this room full of women all about how hard it was and how it was more than you could handle and through God's grace and through community through AA and 12 mm-hmm. steps and then through the church like you were able to to make it we're glad you're here yeah I wanted to share one more thing if I could. Yeah, totally. Because when, when we say yes to Jesus, like life isn't all, you know, roses at that point. And so some of the challenges, I wanted to just touch on a couple really quickly. Mm-hmm. And they, they do focus on the community. Um, before Rod became a pastor, he was a commercial electrician. And there was a dry up in the work up in Seattle. For 11 months, he was laid off. And I worked a job at a Montessori preschool making like $12,000 a year. We had a huge mortgage. And we would show up every Sunday to church, and people would go to shake our hands in the morning, like, good morning, nice to see you. And they would put Fred Meyer gift cards in our hand. Um, groceries would just be on our front porch. Um, people came and cleaned our house. The community that is the church, whether it's you know through Life Path or community group or Sunday morning service, serving, being in the children's ministry, being a greeter, whatever, there, there is a community available to all of us. And I think for me, I stand in my own way in allowing that community to, for allowing me to be a part of that community. And so um, y'all can hold me accountable (laughs) to continuing to be in the community because uh, the community needs you and the community needs me and we get to then be a blessing to one another. So I just wanted to touch on that, that, you know, it isn't all roses after we say yes, but we don't, I don't have to drink or use at what happens anymore because Christ is the foundation. Amen. Thanks, lady. Thanks, Sam. I seriously have a crush on her. <laughs> like in a healthy way, husband, healthy. It's all good. You're still my hunk of burning love. So I would venture to say through our table talk time and um, through hearing Diane's story and thinking about, as one table brought up, all the examples in the Bible of people who got more than they can handle, I'm pretty sure it's safe to say that, yes, God does give us more than we can handle. My question is still, is that thought scripturally based? 
Like, is that truth with a capital T? So where I think it comes from in reading about this and praying about this and how great is it that when you are learning about something, God just gives you so many opportunities. So of course, I chose the topic of suffering. So this last week has been super awesome. I think not. Anyways, all that to say, I think this is where we get that concept and that idea. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. So if you have your Bible or if you have your Bible downloaded onto your phone and you want to look it up, I'm going to read two different translations and then um, we'll go from there. So again, that's 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Uh, The NIV translation says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So if we're looking at what that verse actually says, it's talking about temptation. It's not talking about um, trials and suffering and all of that. It has to do with temptation. And really, if we step back from that particular verse and look at the whole chapter and look at the whole book, um, 1 Corinthians was a church um, it's a letter that was written from Paul to a church in Corinth. And Corinth was kind of that place that like if you were going to plant a church, it would not be the place to plant a church, which means it's the perfect place to plant a church, right? So like if you're thinking about Vegas, for example, Vegas and Corinth were kind of like there together. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't know if Corinth had great like, shows like the Blue Man Group and like Broadway and stuff, but let's say maybe they did. So Paul's writing this letter to the church. He, he went to Corinth. He knew like, if, I, if these people can follow, then anybody can follow because they're like way out there. So he plants a church, and then he goes and does more teaching and does more planting, and then he starts hearing like, rat row. <laughs> they are straying way away from Jesus. Um, and... Uh, this isn't what I taught them, and this isn't God's will, God's love. Like, whoa, it's super messy. So he's writing them a letter. Um, so we're kind of reading their mail, if you think about it that way, which I'm pretty sure is illegal now. <laughs> like, I'm not going to show up and read their mail, but like, since it's in the Bible, we totally have, we can read it, and no one's going to jail. That's the good news. Um, especially because we live where we live. So grateful for that. So Paul's writing this this letter to this church that's hurting and that's confused and that's overwhelmed. And he's establishing relatability in the first part of that chapter. He's saying the Israelites, they were slaves and they were were in captivity. Like God frees them and brings them out. Food literally, I don't know how good manna was. I'm going to guess it probably wasn't like Red Robin barbecue chicken wrap, but... Um, it literally, the food is falling from this. It's there. Every, they have food. 
They have food with like nothing else. Like they have food, they have water. They follow this cloud by day and this pillar by night. Like God is there. He is moving. He is, I mean, hello, this is amazing, right? Well, I think it's amazing. Um, So then they start straying and doubting and worshiping not God. And so Paul's establishing this relatability to this church, saying the Israelites struggled with this too. It makes total sense that you're struggling with this as well. And God's not going to give you more temptation than you can handle. He's faithful. He's going to be there. And then at the end of the chapter, he talks about community. And he talks about communion and taking the Lord's Supper and breaking bread and remembering all that Jesus has done. So when we step back and look big picture, I think we've come to the conclusion that that particular passage is not at all talking about having more than we can handle. Talking about temptation, relatability, community, communion, and and that's where Paul's taking it, not necessarily in you won't get more than you can handle. So you get another opportunity for a little table talk now. What does more than we can handle look like? Oh, yeah. Okay, so really quick, I want to give you two things to think about before we have this little table talk time. Number one, please feel free to pass and be all like, "Uh I know exactly what too much to handle is and I'm out. I don't want to talk about it. And that's totally fine. Um, What are maybe some examples? Maybe not even necessarily your own personal ones. Some examples from the Bible. We talked about there's lots of different people in the Bible that have suffered and had lots of trials and tribulations and more than they can handle. So I'm going to give you guys a couple minutes to, sh- to share and discuss at your tables about that, and then we'll come back and chat some more. Is there anybody, a brave soul, who would like to share a little bit about what their table discussed? Oh, the expectations that others have of us in contrast to what we have of ourselves, being more than we can handle. Step at a time. Mm-hmm. So their table talked about just a, being a mom is more than you can handle. And then there are those other things of losing a spouse or burying a loved one. Anybody else? Okay. So I would venture to say that as we've discussed this and as, as we've gotten into the Word to see what God says about it, we're all in agreement that we will get more than we can handle. Is that a fair statement? I think that's a fair statement. Um, let's see what then God says about like suffering and trials and tribulations. Does that sound good? Sounds really fun, huh? I picked <laughs> such a great topic. Yeah. I got you Kleenex. You're welcome. Okay. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Um, For this one, my personal journey and story of adoption Um, For those of you that don't know, we have four kids. Um, Caleb is seven, Samaria is six, and they're biological kids. And then we adopted twins from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. My Congo cuties, I call them. I have a thing for nicknames. 
I call my kids brownies. Our last name's Brown. I have two vanilla kids and two chocolate kids. And I don't know, I've had people say like, you know, that's not all right, but they're my brownies. So anyways, all that to say. When I think about the adoption process, um, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. And so when people I love are going through this process and they're hurting and they're waiting and they have no idea where the funds are going to come from and they're being obedient to God's call and they're being obedient to his voice, I can come alongside them and I can say, I love you and I see you. Because I got to go through it. Got to. And that also brings me to the fact that when we think about Having little kids, you know, there's lots of questions. We're in the season of questions. Oh, my Lanta. <sighs> Why and how and so many questions, so many questions. So my thought on this is, okay, how am I going to explain to my seven-year-old that, you know, God had so much faith in, in Belle and Ollie that they could totally handle losing their mom at nine months old and then being dropped off at an orphanage and sitting there waiting for us for 18 months and being nine and 10 pounds at one year old because they were so malnourished. And by the time they got to us, they had had 25 caregivers and we were their eighth home. So I can't look at my son and say, you know what, God had, God had so much faith in their ability to handle that that he just shoveled all that out for them. That's not the God that we love and serve. That's not the God who loves you. He's there with you. Even in the Corinthians verse about temptation, it says, and God is faithful. So even in temptation theft, God is faithful. Even in the really hard troubles and the un unknowns and all the, uh, he's faithful. Okay. Uh, this, is, this one I have a hard time with sometimes. 2 Corinthians 4.17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That one's hard because how do I look at my friend who's burying her four-year-old and say, this is a light and momentary trouble for all eternity and glory that's coming up ahead. I can't. That's not light. That's not momentary. That's paralyzing. And he is faithful. And he loves you. And he's there with you. First um, Peter 4, 12 through 13. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. A lot of times when I'm going through hard stuff, I say, why God, why me? And I had a conversation with a friend who was diagnosed with cancer, and her response was, why not me? 
Why not? And I so appreciate that perspective because I think sometimes I get trapped into this world of it's all about me. And once you ask Jesus to be the king of your life and the Lord of your heart, it's all about him and his glory that's revealed. Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I consider our present sufferings. I don't know if you see the theme in all of these verses. They're addressing suffering. They're addressing pain and trials and not in a way that's like, well, maybe you'll get it. If you learn this lesson, then the next thing can happen or you're doing something wrong or you're missing something. Present suffering, we'll, we'll have them. Think about... Um, some friends of mine. It was actually the very first wedding that I coordinated back in the day. Um, John and Kate. And John was in a skiing accident in high school and was paralyzed. So he's in a wheelchair. Kate is, well, she's just Kate. Super cute and super friendly and like taught the little kindergarten preschool class. And when they got married, her whole Sunday school class were flower girls. It was like 12 of these girls in the princess dresses. It was amazing. Um, the, the, like looking up at the platform at the wedding, like it was so cool because they had chairs. So like some of the bridesmaids and groomsmen sat and some people stood and Kate sat next to John. And it, I don't know, it was just beautiful. It was amazing. And they're one of those couples that you're like, super cute, they're going to make cute babies, and they're going to have a really great family, and it's going to be awesome. Because two cute people make cute babies, and two regular people make, it's a question mark. So for Jeff and I, rabbit trail, I'm coming back, I promise. So for Jeff and I, when um, I was pregnant with Caleb, our oldest, I was just like, um, I don't know what's going to happen. Because I don't think Jeff and I are super hot, but I don't think we're super ugly either. I think we're like right in the middle. And so when the nurse, I mean, I think he's super hot, but it's my husband in love, so I think that. It's okay. So anyways, the nurse hands Caleb to me, and I am like, oh, he is so cute. And she says, you sound surprised. <laughs> And I said, I am. And I tell her my philosophy, and she's like, honey, I've been a nurse for 30 years, and I've never heard something so ridiculous. <laughs> she walked out. I'm sure the next Christmas party she went to, she was like, and then there was this crazy lady that came in who was surprised her kid was cute. I was. Anyways, where was I? Help me. John and Kate. So... Uh, John decides that he wants to go to medical school, goes to medical school to become a doctor, and um, they try to have kids. And um, 12 miscarriages. 12. Kate just did a photo shoot with a photographer recently of her um, in in a desert area with a dozen balloons in her hand. And it's probably one of the most... Just, oh, just kidding. 
how do you wrap your head around that? How do you, how do you explain that? Um, and then um, they were looking into adoption. And because John's in a wheelchair, they can't internationally. Kindergarten teacher, doctor, loved Jesus. Told no. And just the other day, there was a picture. I did ask for their permission to share this. Just the other day, Kate put up a picture on Facebook of John holding these two little babies that they get to do foster care for. And he said, you go to Target, and I'll take care of the little ones. <laughs> so she got her Target time. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be pain. There's going to be trials. And he's with you. So this was an ampersand that I uh, got from my husband to put in his office. And for those of you that have heard this, I'm sorry to repeat it. I'll give you the short version. I was on a run with a friend, and things were really hard with our twins. Really, really hard. And um, they were hurting a lot. And I wanted to fix it, and I wanted to make it better, and I couldn't. And so we're on a run, and I was said, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God called us to these girls. I know that they're mine. I know that they're mine. But I don't understand why it has to be so hard. And her insight was, if you say but, you're erasing everything in front. I know that God called us to adopt Isabel and Olivier. And it has been one of the hardest seasons of my life. And so this is a great little reminder for me that those two things can exist at the same time. It can be hard. You can get a diagnosis of cancer. Maybe you don't even get a diagnosis. Maybe your husband is having multiple strokes and nobody knows why and nobody knows what's going on. And you have no clue what is happening and why. And he's faithful and he loves you. I feel like so often we try to encourage and love people. We wanna, we wanna give them an answer. We wanna fix it and make it better. I relate to that. I'm a fixer. I love to fix it and make it better. <laughs> I hate to see people I love hurt. I hate it. I think when we look at the Bible for truth and we look at Jesus, the crucifixion was literally more than he could handle physically more than he could handle. He is in the garden of Gethsemane, I am guessing, crying out, saying, if this cup can pass from me, let it. 
because he knows what's up ahead. And he's saying, if there's any other way, if there's any other way. And then he goes to the cross. And nailed. Lungs collapsing. Crown of thorns. Physically way more than you can handle. And he chose. He chose to stay there. Because he loves us. He chose more than he could handle. And here's the deal, ladies. I don't know about you, but for me sometimes, I think when I'm in the middle of something crappy, is it crappy? Okay. <laughs> when I'm in the middle of something crappy, I think, oh, there's a lesson. I gotta learn a lesson. Or God has something to teach me. Or there's, um, uh, there's something wrong. There's some sin in my life. Or I need to have more faith. If I have more faith, Jesus was perfect. Perfect. Zero sins. Direct connection to God. Fully God, fully man. And suffered the death that he did. Give yourself grace. It's not about you learning something so you can get through this or having more faith or having more of any of that. It's, it's, So, it's this. In this life, you will have trials of many kinds. And I love you and faithful. This right here, this lovely mess, that's for you and God. He loves you. And it's going to be crappy sometimes. And if we can hold on to these two truths, it's okay that we don't have all the answers. It's okay that we don't understand. You didn't do anything wrong. He's not up there waiting for you to learn something. He loves you and he's faithful. The worship team is gonna come up and um, you are going to have an opportunity to respond in whatever way is comfortable for you. For some of you, you need to grab the box of Kleenex that's on your table or the table that's next to you and like blow some snot and cry some tears. For some of you, you're going to need to take a friend and go have somebody pray for you. So if I talk to you about praying, if you want to start making your way over to that general area, pretty please, that would be great. Um, and have the opportunity to respond in remembrance. That, that concept and that idea of these trials and tribulations and sufferings that we get, we get to have in our life. I love being on the other side and looking back and remembering. Monday will be two years that our twins have been home. And Monday marks the day that Del and Ollie will have been with us longer than without. 
I get to look at March 9th and remember how good God was and how hard it was. And so we have communion set up in the back so that you can take an opportunity to remember how hard it was, how much he loves you, that he desires for you to be in his presence more than anything, and that every single tear you cry, he, in Psalms, it says, he's collecting in a jar. So, do you understand how painfully awkward that would have to be for someone to be so physically close to you that they could catch your tears in a jar? Watch, I'll show you really quick. <laughs> JJ, it's all you. Okay, so I have to be this close right here and like hug her and have my arms around her and have a cup right underneath her eye. That's how much he loves you. That's how close he is to you. He's that close. He loves you that much. <laughs>